From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Nan, the show connecting your neighborhood with the world. It's Tech Tuesday. Amy Webb has been called a digital futurist. She's been following tech trends for more than a decade, and each year she puts out a report on what to watch, both long and short term. Her predictions? A smart personal virtual assistant will soon anticipate our needs and act accordingly. A clear view of the skies will soon be a thing of the past, because drones will be ubiquitous. Bots and algorithms will generate our news content, and pretty much every object around us will soon be a network-connected device. If all of this makes you worry about your privacy and the security of your personal information, it should. Joining us to discuss what's ahead in technology for 2016 is the aforementioned Web. Amy is a writer, futurist, and founder of Web Media Group, a digital strategy consulting firm researching near-future trends in digital media and technology. She's the author of Data, a love story, a best-selling memoir about finding love through algorithms. Amy, good to see you again. It's great to see you, Kojo. I was half expecting, actually not you, but your telepresence bot here for this interview today. I know, and I wanted to bring it. It's a little heavy. Um, have you seen these bots yet? No, but there's one on our website. If you go to kojoshow.org, you can see a telepresence bot, and the person whose face you'll see in it is Amy's. <laughs> Tell us me. about it. How does this work? What is it? So uh, there are a handful of these robots that are experimental. Some of them are coming to market. The one that you'll see on the, uh, the website is coming to market soon, and it's by the company called Beam. And it does exactly what it sounds like. It, it beams you in to wherever you may want to go. Now, in this day and age, we have Facebook, we have, uh, which is going to be allowing video conversations soon. But we already have FaceTime. We've got Skype. Why would you need a something that essentially looks like a video screen on a stick that yes. can roll around your, your office or home? You know, I wondered the same thing at first, but after using it quite a bit, I have a distributed office. We don't work in any one central location. I'm on the road a lot for work. And, you know, when you when you use a video conferencing tool, you can... In, in a lot of ways, it's wonderful because you can see the micro expressions in somebody else's face, but you don't have that sense of presence. Mm -hmm. And it is very difficult to conceptualize this unless you've actually experienced it. But having somebody be there sort of uh, that is uh, able to ro roam around on their own, you know, versus just sitting in front of a static laptop or computer or phone mm -hmm. is a vastly different experience. The Beam, um, which is the one that I've been experimenting with the most, uh, you know, at home, uh, we figured out how to make it open doors. So mm -hmm. when I'm on the road, I can follow my daughter around the house. I can open up the door. You know, we have dinner together. And it does it does really feel like um, it feels much more like I'm there because there's a sense of autonomy. But I also think for her, it gives her a better sense of me, you know, being there with her. I think they could have used that 
in the movie Spotlight, but they were talking <laughs> yeah. about the Boston Globe and editors and reporters were constantly running from one room to another, walking very quickly in order to confer with one another. Telepresence bots would have performed, been able to perform the same functions, wouldn't they? Well, more efficiently, at least. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so, so this is one thing I haven't done yet. I haven't been in a meeting with like five telepresence bots. I've been <laughs> in a meeting with one or where I'm, I'm the bot. Uh, I don't know what that would be like in an office environment, um, you know, if there was a bunch of them. But I, but I will say this. Our brains are literally being rewired because of how we use technology. And so there is that sense of, um, you know, when, when it used to be us just listening, listening to you on the radio and having no other distraction or talking on the telephone, you know, there were some other distractions, but you really had to sort of pay attention in this sort of digital space that we live in. We're bombarded with uh, opportunities to split our attention. And so I, I think that, you know, again, I, I think this is going to be one of those things like when the iPhone came out and everybody laughed at it and said, who's going to buy a phone with no buttons? You know, <laughs> I really do think um, people people look at these devices and think they're ridiculous. Um, but the more that you start using them, Really, it it does bring a sense of humanity back to technology, and so the the one that I, that you'll see on the site that I've been using is the Beam. In case you're just joining us, we're talking with Amy Webb about future tech trends, and you can join the conversation by calling eight hundred four three three eight eight five zero. What tech trends do you predict will be big in twenty sixteen? What tech trends do you think will fizzle out? You can also send email to kojo at wamu dot org or tweet at kojo show using the hashtag Tech Tuesday, or go to our website kojoshow dot org where you can see some of the items that Amy predict will be trending in the future. You put out this report each year, which is closely followed by many in the tech world. You track trends in digital media and technology. What is a trend anyway? We think we know, but you say it's more than the latest shiny object. How do you define and describe it in terms of new technology? So a trend is not necessarily trendy. Um, my job is to forecast and I use the word forecast rather than predict, because predict would make it sound as though I'm looking into some crystal ball. Um, I've, I have a sort of data-driven methodology that I've spent the past decade refining. It, it involves um, going out to the sort of fringes of, of society and to researchers who are just starting to, uh, to do interesting work that don't necessarily have an outcome or don't have to prove a profit. And from there, I start looking at patterns and uh, several steps later wind up with um, sort of these pattern indicators, which I call trends. And it's those trends that uh, either in aggregate um, sort of tell a picture of, of what to be looking at um, or individually help me think through scenarios of what the future might look like in several years. Now, here's the thing. There are things that are trendy, like uh, there was a report that came out this morning that there were these two Pantone colors that were the two trendy colors of the year. So there's that kind of trend. Mm -hmm. uh, in my space, these trends are really more sort of harbingers of, uh, of w what to look for as, you know, beyond the horizon. So the trends that are in this report, um, you know, there are, things in the, there are things in the report that are trendy, like drones, I think, you know, or we'll look back, our future historians will look back on this time and, and think we were barbarians for, <laughs> for filling our airspace with these flying death machines. <laughs> but, uh, but, but the bigger question that I'm interested in was, well, how do these things 
if we have drones, how does that affect how we live? How does that affect policy? How does that affect business? And what ultimately does that indicate about uh, what's coming in the future? You track what you call disruptive technologies that will have an impact in 2016 and beyond. And your research follows three tracks, far range, near future, and immediate. So that's how things end up on your Tech Trends 2016 list. First on the list of these trends that you're tracking for 2016, bots. Yeah. So we talked about uh, telepresence bot, yep. which was uh, that, that beam device. There are other bots, though, that you know people interact with every day and maybe don't even realize it. Um, so, for example, a lot of news stories are written by bots, which are algorithms that uh, take data and uh, translate that into something that sounds like typical newspaper speech, right, speak. And uh, there's ultimately an editor that will look over that, but that story gets published. So anything with structured data, that'd be like financial stories, sports, um, you know, you will ultimately see a lot of those in your local newspaper or on a, on a website that were actually not written by humans, but were in fact written by uh, written by a bot. So news, journal- news organizations are already using bots that, should we in journalism worry about being soon out of jobs? Yeah, I get that question a lot. And as a former journalist, I, uh, <laughs> I understand that. No, if anything, I think journalists should welcome these. And that's because, uh, you know, news organizations don't have the financial wherewithal that they did 30 years ago. And so all of those jobs within a newsroom that were sort of more general, uh, where you would have the younger people on staff going out to do that basic sort of first level reporting, writing the ver- first version of the story, you know, that can be automated now. And and those people haven't been on staff anyways, you know, for, for decades. Mm-hmm. Um, so what that means is that journalists can reserve the bulk of their brain power and their considerable talents um, to do those bigger, more important stories and to have that foundation of reporting done for them by a machine. 800-433-8850. Is there a technology you wish existed already? Are you familiar with bots? Do you think they'll be changing the world soon? 800-433-8850. Or send email to koju at wamu.org. We all know that we're getting a lot of content on our mobile devices, whether it's news, music, or movies, but a lot of organizations have not thought beyond adapting headlines to smaller screens. You note that this change is much more than a format issue, though. What should we be paying attention to? Interestingly, um, the role of of curation has always fallen to journalists, uh, who were the arbiters of, uh, you know, what, what's happening? What do people need to know? And that, that ultimately got, um, got published or broadcast. You know, we have machines now that can do a lot of that same work. So what are the, they can surface the most important stories based on the conversations that are being had and the, the amount of traffic going from place to place. And soon, and that's already starting now, um, that content will be distributed. And so, it, automatically. Um, we have a lot of wearable devices. Um, I've got a couple of, or I've got a watch, uh, a, um, uh, a digital uh, device, a wearable device that feeds me content. Uh, my husband does too. But ultimately, you still only have a pretty small screen. So there's not a lot of context that comes along with that story. Um, but what we will see happening, especially uh, in this year, uh, is more and more content being delivered automatically to our mobile devices and that content is really tailored, will become more and more tailored and customized to what we're doing at this moment, to what our particular interests are and the like. You mentioned earlier how this material can, bots can gather this material 
and we can track this material to see what's being looked at most. How does one without journalists make the distinction between what's important and what's popular? Yeah, and that concerns me. And it, I think, you know, mm. it should concern anybody who's living in a democracy. Um, the the challenge, and this is, you know, this has been a debate now for a while in journalism, and the challenge is how do we capture people's attention, which is ever capricious and fleeting, um, but also make sure that we're, you know, giving them a, a responsible amount of information, but also entertainment. Um you know, we have algorithms right now that can predict with a pretty good likelihood based on how I use my device, where I am at this moment, how fast I'm going, uh, what my previous behaviors are, can predict the next 10 seconds of my thought pattern, right? And therefore deliver to me the content that, um, you know, is going to be most relevant and therefore work, will capture my attention. Now, the problem with that is that there are still humans that are programming the algorithms, Right. And so if the humans decide that um, we, need an, we need as much Kardashian in our daily mix because that's what we're, we have a higher, likely, higher probability of pay, paying attention to that on a more regular basis than something much more complicated like, you know, whether or not the Fed is going to increase rates, you know, then we, then we have a problem. And I will also say that people who are adept at uh, social media and understanding how content is, will be flowing in the next few years um, – you know, have managed to, uh, you know, take advantage and usurp the sort of national conversation. So I guess I can say that more clearly, like Donald Trump is really, really good at this, right? Yes. So. <laughs> yeah, because as we try to make that distinction between what is popular and what is important, you know that if the Fed raises interest rates, it will affect probably every human being in the country in some way or the other. But actually reading about it, when you see people's eyes glaze over, they don't glaze over when they're reading about Trump or they're reading about the Kardashians. So journalists have really always had to make that kind of distinction. Sure. And the business desk was always the least popular for uh, in the newsroom, right? Nobody wanted to go work on the business desk. That's true. Okay. What's this bracelet? So I brought in for you today, I know how much you love uh, gadgets and, and different technologies. That's a Mio armband, it's spelled M-Y-O. Huh. And uh, this was, this is, the company's been around for a few years, and um, this device is meant to be worn up on your forearm. So that is a beautiful uh, dongle, but you need it up higher. There you go. And, um, and with a little bit of training, this device, which uh, it looks, gosh, how, do you, how would you describe that? It looks like a bunch of maybe matchboxes, yep. metallic matchboxes. Like dominoes. Yeah, like dominoes. That's a better way of describing it. Connected with these um, sort of jig zigzagged uh, um, pieces of maybe plastic. Um, that is Bluetooth enabled. So if you plug uh, a little dongle into a computer or into a television or whatever, um, with your using only that hand, you can control uh, the device. Um, so you could really mess with the other people in your household by hiding that underneath your sleeve and changing the channel on them every time, <laughs> yeah. uh, which I may have done once or twice. Uh, but, but you can also do things like control games, control your computer. And it's an example of what's called a gestural interface, which is something that we're uh, monitoring, one of the trends we're monitoring over the next 12 to 18 months. And that idea is, uh, can we increase the use of our devices without actually using the devices so much. So um, just as there are lots of companies in the, in the coming year that are going to endeavor to, uh, to turn your remote control, to, to have your smartphone replace the remote control that's in your living room, there are also companies working on these gesture-based interfaces, uh, and they're 
trying to get rid of the remote control altogether uh, and just have it be sort of just hand, you know, hand-based. And this is a gesture-based interface that fits on my forearm. My sleeve can go over it. So I imagine what you did at your home was cover it up so that nobody in the room actually could see it. And yet you're manipulating stuff going on. If you would like to see some of the technology that Amy Webb is talking about, you can go to our website, kojoshow.org, and you'll see a slideshow there. You can also join the conversation there or call us, 800-433-8850. Do you have a drone? What do you use it for? Are you worried about privacy when it comes to drones? You can also shoot email to kojo at wmu.org or send us a tweet at kojoshow. I'm Kojo Nandi. Welcome back. It's Tech Tuesday. Our guest is A.B. Webb. She's a writer, writer, futurist, and founder of Web Media Group. It's a digital strategy consulting firm researching near and future trends in digital media and technology. She's also the author of Data, a Love Story, a best-selling memoir about finding love through algorithms. We're talking about future tech trends and inviting your calls at 800-433-8850. Speaking of bots, here is George in Washington, D.C. George, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Uh, good afternoon, Jojo. Good afternoon. And to your guest. Well, I just wanted to uh, share with uh, you and the audience uh, uh, a unique use of a bot um, at the current uh, event that Artomatic uh, has uh, in New Carrollton, um, um, uh, Prince George's County, um, on top of the bot. Um, so if you use the analogy that was given before, that uh, bot's a uh, um, basically a stick with wheels and, and a, a tablet on top. Um, uh, one of the artists in Artomatic has taken um, and created a sculpture uh, around the basically the stick for the bot, and her daughter is in Norway, and through Skype, her daughter was able to um, uh, see the exhibit through the bot. Um, uh, it's a you know, it's a four-story building with about 525 artists, and she was able to uh, use Skype to actually view the um, view the exhibit. Take a tour of the entire exhibit using right. a bot makes absolute sense, doesn't it, Amy? Yeah, yeah, and I think again, I'm, you know, especially when it comes to art, it, you can look at pictures of sculptures and you can certainly look at paintings on the wall, but there is a, you get a better sense of presence if you are operating and sort of able to move around in the physical world, unlike you are even with virtual reality. Um, I, I do think it gives you a better sense of experiencing that, um, that piece of art. That sounds really cool. Thank you very much for your call, George. Speaking of virtual reality, a lot of people have now tried out some form of it. Google Cardboard is out there, and this is the year it comes into our living rooms, even if somebody isn't a gamer. Talk about that. So virtual reality has been... Uh, topic of conversation in Silicon Valley now for several years. Um, we, we haven't seen those devices launch just yet, but this will be the year that that happens. Uh, the devices will come in two formats, tethered, uh, which is sort of these, and if you haven't seen these before, 
it's it's a little off-putting. Um, it, it's a big headset that you wear, and uh, we tried out uh, Google Cardboard, which mm-hmm. was delivered with the New York Times a few weeks ago. Yeah, so so Cardboard uh, is a device that you put your mobile phone into, and then Samsung has a device called Gear, um, and and that's one where you you sort of hold it up to your head. There are also uh, models that you you really do sort of put around your whole entire head and, and you plug it into a wall and, and you know or into the computer uh this this will be the year that we finally see these devices getting into the hands of consumers part of the reason is because there wasn't really content before but we know now that there are movie studios and gaming companies the new york times is you know lots of people are producing content and the challenge in the past had always had to do with lag um the, the in order for you not to feel sick and for you to feel like whatever it is that you're looking at is real, um, you have to meet a minimum threshold of uh, when you move your head to, to when your brain receives that signal. So over the past couple of years, that's one of the VR challenge, the technical challenges that have been solved for, or at least it's becoming solved for. And so you, you sort of have this confluence now of the technology is better, devices actually exist, and so does content. So 2016, we're going to see lots of different uh, opportunities in, in virtual reality. Talk about augmented reality in general, and in particular, the two drivers on the racetrack. <laughs> so there is virtual reality, which is you um, stepping into a computer world, and theoretically, uh, there is no difference between what you would experience in, in sort of the real world and this digital world. And then there's augmented reality, which is um, an overlay. So you're doing whatever you would be doing in the real world, and you've got goggles on or something else um, that sort of give you sort of an additional um, bit of information or or experience. So we're seeing these two worlds start to converge. And uh, one of the, this is in the virtual virtual reality space, but Castro, um, as a publicity stunt, really, released a video of two race two race car drivers and for anybody who watches top gear one of them was the the stig at one point uh driving around a real racetrack wearing virtual reality goggles so the the racetrack was mapped um but but they did not see out their windshield they were driving real cars uh in virtual reality and not only did they not crash but they they had pretty good track performance um so that that tells us two things um one it's interesting to think of having a simultaneous physical world and, and digital world experience. And two, that, you know, the technology's gotten pretty good that professional race car drivers can basically with, you know, blind drive around a course now, right? And not crash. Well, it's cool. I just wondered, well, why the heck would you want to Why would you do, do that? Because yeah. it's cool, Kojo. That's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> Here is Ken in Sykesville, Maryland. Ken, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hey, thanks very much. Uh, quick comment, Kojo. My eyes do glaze over when you mention Cardassians. And uh, my question is, uh, the uh, authors like William Gibson, who have a future like in Mona Lisa Overdrive, where technology is implanted into the body, have you run across anything like that that's being worked on for the future of implanted technology? Is that a trend? That's a great question. Um, And that's actually one of the the themes in my next book, which is coming out at the end of next year. So there's a a group of uh, what are called biohackers, and biohackers... Uh, are you know trying to figure out ways to implant devices and um, you know optimize what their bodies can do? So it's sort of technology-assisted living, where that technology is literally inside of your body. So some of the things people have done um, are implant magnets underneath their skin. They're implanting uh, Bluetooth-enabled RFID tag, you know, and, and RFID tags. 
so that, for example, they can open up their car doors without having any keys on them now uh, or answer their phone or, or something like that. This may seem a ridiculous and dangerous, possibly even use of technology. Why would anybody do this? Uh, but the reality is that these, these crazy experiments that start out on the fringe, um, you know, at some point there, there is a convergence and uh, sometimes that technology goes nowhere. Sometimes it becomes some, something like CRISPR-Cas9, Cas uh, mm -hmm. which is genomic editing, which is very much a uh, a trend in this year's report. Um, and that is, you know, editing. This is biohacking at the sort of gene level, right? And uh, and for those for, who aren't familiar with this technology, uh, it edits our uh, genes. Um, so that's something like malaria, uh, which is carried by mosquitoes and is, is horrific and dangerous for millions of people around the world. Mm -hmm. um, you can't kill off the entire mosquito population for a variety of reasons, um, but you can edit it so that uh, they no longer carry malaria. And so those people are no longer infected without destroying the population of mosquitoes. So, you know, I, I think a lot of times when we think about the future, we, we want to see flying cars. And if we don't see flying cars or something big and obvious in the future isn't here, a lot of the trends that we're tracking uh, and a lot of these future developments may be things you don't see, um, but they but they are very much are the sort of crazy, crazy, it sounds like it came from the crazy imaginations of, of science fiction. Thank you very much for your call. Speaking of flying things, may not be cars, but drones are big, and you say we should prepare for an exponential change in the number of aerial objects around us. Can you talk about that and what effect that might have on our lives? Sure. And then I'll also talk about two, uh, one potential Im implication and one potential business opportunity. Um, so, you know, the, depending on whose estimate you look at over the holiday season through the end of 2016 and, and beginning of 2016, end of 2015, uh, beginning of 2016, uh, some people are estimating as many as 500,000 drones to be sold in the United States. Um, that's a lot of drones. You know, that's a lot. And, uh, you, you know, in an urban area like New York City and throughout many places around Washington, D.C., um, those areas are geofenced. So the newer drone technologies uh, are coded such that, you know, you, you, it would be really hard to fly a drone um, around certain places. But, you know, I have a drone. Actually, we have a few drones. Um, neighbors down the street have a drone. They're loud. And they're small, but I, I do think that we will, again, I think our future historians will look back on 2016 as the year that we had unobstructed views of, of clear blue skies. I do think that we're, we're heading toward um, pretty quickly a scenario where we're going to see a lot of stuff flying overhead. Now, those 400,000 to 500,000 drones I mentioned are consumer drones. So there are, you know, Amazon is not the only company that is working on um uh, commercial drones. And then we also have, you know, other drones for other purposes. So there are companies in Switzerland that are trying to deliver medications uh, across mountains um, to make it easier for people so that they don't have to drive on, on dangerous roads. In Germany, the post office, the postal service there is experimenting with mail delivery via drone. So here are the implications of that. Um, th this doesn't you know, drones, more expensive commercial grade drones have something called sense and avoid technology, which basically means drones will not, you know, crash into each other or a building. But the cheaper models don't. And the expensive, on the expensive end of the cheaper models, uh, you can set waypoints, but there is no such thing as making sure drones don't smash into each other or smash into a 
airplane or you know something like that. So I do think that we're we're headed toward um, in the coming years some legislation. I think it's inevitable. Technology has been racing ahead of our ability well, to regulate and to legislate around it. Yeah, that's the problem. So, and um, this was really the first year that 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 itself was a, a trend. Um, I, you know, I'm I'm incredibly concerned that you know Washington D.C. gets really excited about technology at the point at which we have to make that decision because now it's it's a you know it's a vital. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't understand why nobody was talking about drones in a meaningful way years ago. Um, now we're talking about a, a mythal, you know, sort of this invisible highway system in the sky, um, you know, where drones uh, will be regulated and commercial drones might fly at a certain altitude and, and uh, consumer drones would fly at a different, you know, altitude. That's fine. That That's a temporary fix. But where's the tenure? You know, where's our longer term thinking? And what winds up happening is that technology is scary. And so our legislators either, you know, uh, it becomes this polarizing issue. And so you see that with drones. You see that with CRISPR, uh, which is that genetic testing uh, or genetic uh, editing system that I mentioned. You know, the conversations have to start, um, you know, at the point that I'm looking at them, right? When when the technology is first starting to be conceived of at the fringe, by the time it, it goes commercial or you see it in the public, or even, you know, it, it winds up in a, one of my trend reports, it's too late. Well, we got uh, an a email from a mother who says drones should not be sold as toys. They should be kept as military equipment, just like AK-47 should be kept as military equipment because they can be used for nefarious purposes. That horse has left the barn. Oh, yeah. So that's, you know, this is the challenge. Um, you know, I, I like to think that there are these stages of technology acceptance, and it usually begins with, oh, no, the world is ending, right? <laughs> uh, nobody should use it because it's only bad. And then, you know, at the end of that spectrum, after a certain amount of time and, it, you know, has passed, it's, you know, how did we ever live without these things? I think we think of drones right now as expensive toys, or we think of them as surveillance devices. We don't often think of drones as... Um, you know, necessary to deliver, for example, medicine to people who live in rural areas. Um, we have a post, you know, postal service in this country that has historic, you know, it's got funding issues. It will continue to have funding issues. Um, and part of the reason that things are expensive is because we have to subsidize people who are living in rural areas. So the USPS should have its own fleet of drones to make those deliveries. Um, you know, so so again, I, but 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 this goes to this challenge that we have with technology because regulators is, and politicians seem not to be even keeping up with technology never mind looking ahead at the longer term implications right and so there you know years ago this got defunded sometime during uh newt gingrich's time in office um there was the office of planning office of tech uh, what was it called office of planning and does that sound familiar? I'm Technology blanking. planning. Anyhow, there was an office in the 90s that, and, and, and its job was to sort of do this, right? To think through the, the implications uh, early, early on. What are the implications of doing these things? And I just don't see our politicians doing long-term planning, not meaningfully. And so it winds up, and, and the stuff is complicated. So by the time people get angry enough that there's legislation or somebody gets excited enough about it it's a polarized issue and you and you wind up with uh you know lobbyists who who have their own interests understandably you've got the people making policy and making decisions who 
don't have enough institutional knowledge or technological understanding of what the issue is. And so you wind up with a debate that's fraught with opinion versus, uh, you know, fact in the present day. And then again, that sort of longer term, what does this mean? What are we doing today that is going to negatively or possibly, you know, positively impact, but will somehow impact, you know, our daily lives and, and the way that our, our country um, functions in the future? Here now, speaking of drones is Elizabeth in Annapolis, Maryland. Elizabeth, your turn. Hi there. So when do you predict that the man drone will be coming out? Man drone as in a single human being being able to be transported from point A to point B. So that's a good question. One of the challenges with drones, and I'm, by the way, no means a drone expert, uh, but I I can say this. One of the problems right now with non-military grade drones um, is the weight restrictions so that, you know, in order to make these things fly, even, even the more powerful drones where you've got a battery life issue, uh, they can only go, you know, at such an, an altitude for so long, um, getting an actual human, um, transported by drone, you know, versus some other devices. Gyrocopter. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, still, it's it's, uh, and it would be loud. I mean, we're we're a ways off from that. Some of you may be wondering why would we need to transport a human by themselves? <laughs> with the, you know, there are many. Um, there are rescue reasons. So there, there's some really legitimate reasons to have a drone capable of carrying a person. Makes absolute sense, especially if that person is in an area where it's difficult for another vehicle with humans Absolutely. to actually access. Sure. Elizabeth, thank you very much for your call. We're going to take a short break. If you have calls, stay on the line. If you'd like to call, it's 800-433-8850. It's Tech Tuesday. We're discussing future tech trends with Amy Webb. As technology becomes a part of everything we use in our daily lives, are you concerned about privacy, data breaches? That's where we're going next, 800-433-8850. You can go to our website, kojoshow.org, and see the slideshow about some of the things that Amy Webb says are trend or will be trends of the future. I'm Kojo Nandi. Welcome back. It's a Tech Tuesday conversation on future tech trends with Amy Webb. She's a writer, futurist, and founder of Web Media Group. That's a digital strategy consulting firm researching near future trends in digital media and technology. She's also the author of the book Data, a love story, a best-selling memoir about finding love through algorithms. Amy, privacy and security are areas you're especially focused on. Data breaches have become a recurring problem, including the Office of Personnel Management, which earlier this year had a massive data breach affecting millions of federal employees, many of whom live in this region. For those who hope some of these major breaches were a wake-up call for major organizations to get a handle on, or get a handle on security, you see more breaches ahead. I do see more breaches ahead. And, and, you know, I think it's important to note that the methods that will be used to break into our information in the future may not be, um, we may not know exactly what that is right now. What we do know is that, you know, we will see, you know, people will be more and more interested in in breaking into our information. And and for the most part, it's not because they have a personal vendetta against a a single person, although that's certainly the case, you know, sometimes. But this has to do with people being upset at the economy, um, upset at at the way, you know, things are happening in the world. And 
you know, oftentimes groups will band together and try to take down an organization. So, you know, the, what I thought was the most fascinating story of, of 2015 was the Sony hack and how Sony had more than a decade, more than a decade to prepare itself. Uh, there were so many warning signs, you know, from people trying to take down the service. Uh, you know, the, the, there was a PlayStation incident several years ago. There's an entire subreddit. Um, that is literally devoted to, you know, people hating, you know, Sony. Uh, and, and you know, you, if you were to sort of look at this in aggregate, you may think that Sony Motion Pictures has nothing at all to do with, um, you know, the, the gaming company and, 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 you know, the rest of, of the organization. But, you know, when you when you start connecting those dots, and again, this is the this is that sort of longer term planning that is absent from so many organizations that are fixated on these shiny objects in the present. Uh, you know, anybody could have told you that that I don't know when the hack is going to happen, but it will happen, right? And I would say the same is true of the United States government. Uh, and the challenge is that if you're preparing for the hack that happened yesterday or today, you're again that's a shiny object that is distracting you from what is likely to happen in the future. And hiring the world's best, you know, crypto guys and, and women, you know, may not be the best. It's it's part of the solution. But what's really needed is sort of this longer term strategic thinking. And that is not I, I just don't see that happening. Got an email from Jen in Alexandria. I'm one of the many affected by the data breach of federal government employees. I've also had my credit card information exposed at a big chain store. So the idea that everything around me will be network connected and perhaps watched over by a drone isn't comforting. Why isn't the security of our personal information and privacy more of a priority? Is it because of that lack of long-term thinking? It is for me. And the way that I operate my daily life, and I'm somebody who's, you know, connected to everything, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but I do that in a very different way than other people. And so, you know, part, part of the challenge here is that we're relying on other people's services. We're relying on, you know, anybody who uses Gmail is relying on Google to safeguard their information. Now, Google's a big company, and, and you know, one would hope that they're doing that effectively. But, um, you know, we sort of have to... You know, I'm sitting in a studio that is full of incredible equipment, and the reality is that one of the power strips in here could have malware in it, and something as as innocent as plugging in a microphone could be could be in you know a gateway into your credit card information being hacked, Kojo. I mean, that's the sort of reality of how you know the world that we live in. Um, now, I wake up every morning assuming that while I can be hacked just like anybody else, you know, 15 different ways, there's not a lot you know, my, that's necessarily worth hacking. Um, but, but drones aren't even, you know, so what a drone is, is up in the air, uh, taking aerial shots. Um, again, I think this, this comes down to, if you're concerned about privacy, especially in the coming year, you have to get smarter about how, how you're using technology, which is not to say don't use it, but individuals, you know, the, the more that you use, the more that, that goes online, um, the more there is an onus for you to understand how these things work and, and to, Use a little, you know, to to develop a, a sort of. Better. That's going to have to be a part of the human future. Absolutely. We're all going to have to understand better how technology works in order to understand exactly how we can be compromised. But new technology could also help us in the area of security. We're moving towards new ways to secure data. Talk about authentication and what's next there. So there's a couple of interesting developments we're watching. A lot of your listeners have probably heard Bitcoin heard of Bitcoin. And, yep. and Bitcoin is sort of this digital cryptocurrency that uh, isn't isn't tied to any of our conventional um, financial services or institutions. 
Uh, that to me is not super interesting, and I don't know that Bitcoin itself is is going to be around indefinitely. The underlying system um, is called the blockchain, and I, I won't get into a super technical explanation of what that is. But in essence, uh, it's it's a it's an intermediary um, that says yes, you are who you say you are. Yes, I am who I say I am, without actually exchanging any of that information. And in doing so, um, you know we have a better sense of protection because less information is shared um, and a safer transaction. You know, also in that sort of same space is something called zero knowledge proofs. And this is a, again, it's, it's sort of another way of uh, exchanging, uh, of authenticating different parties and saying, yes, these, these people are who they say they are without uh, revealing any actual information. So for example, a zero knowledge proof could be used for, inspecting nuclear reactors. Mm -hmm. You know, if you if you send, you know, inspectors out, they're going to want to run some tests to make sure that the reactor is safe, but we probably don't want to share with them exactly how the reactor works. So this would be a way of of sort of having two keys that unlock something without without necessarily having the users understand a that they're even holding keys or b what those keys look like. So it's a little sort of out there uh, to think about, but uh, but but we are seeing companies experimenting with this now, and we think this will be a trend in the coming well, year. Well, talk about Facebook and face prints. You recommend people check into what data Facebook has on them. Right. So you can actually download your uh, – on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Twitter, you can download your history. Um, so face prints, you know – so again, this is one of these the, – so this is the thing. We don't, we don't realize – we, you know, we're smacked in the face with these technological developments at the end, even though we've been willingly participating in them the whole time. <laughs> so here's a great example of that. Um, so we upload photos all the time to Facebook and, and uh, Facebook bought a company called Face.com a long time ago, which uh, uses technology to automatically recognize who's in a photo, which makes it easier for the people using the service. They don't have to tag everybody. It makes it easier to go back and sort and, and see who's doing what. But also, you're sort of like training Facebook and the other services you use how to better identify you five years from now, right? So in essence, in, in the convenience, you know, we are sacrificing our future, um, you know, our, our future crack at being anonymous, right, uh, for the convenience of today, which, again, speaks to that sort of idea that we're not thinking through the longer term implications, Got an email from Dave in Reston, Virginia. A lot of this technology is dependent on software. We've had safety-critical software-intensive systems for a long time, and outside of a few domains, aircraft, air traffic control, nuclear power plants, there's very little policy or law to hold software people accountable. What kind of catastrophe will it take to change this? That's a good question, um, and, and I'll tell you why it's a good question, because, you know, what, what will it ultimately take? Uh, you know, quite, you know, the, the, the key difference between where we're at today and where we were at, let's say, in 1970, and to be fair, I wasn't around uh, in the early you know, 1970s looking at technology uh, and, and specifically computers, we have a democratized Internet. The Internet was born, um, you know, as a way for people to anybody to uh, it wasn't initially intended for that, but it became that right. Um, it democratized. We can put our information up there, you know, software. Who cares about software anymore? We've got code that, you know, we don't, we don't need software on certain applications and websites. Um, so the challenge with that is that in the very act of regulating, is that does that mean that that controls speech? That Does that control our democratized access? Uh, and that's a complicated question. Better to have that conversation now 
right? Mm-hmm. Uh, than five years from now when we have, you know, when when there are these problems that uh, we can't even conceive of today or, or things that we're dealing with. Speaking of five years from now, the Internet of Things, most of us know that many more of our devices are or will soon be connected, but that technology is going to affect more than, oh, a thermostat that learns to regulate the temperature in my home. Talk about how it works and what's emerging around ambient proximity technology. So we ran out of Internet addresses a couple of years ago, or we, I think we ran out of, I don't, I don't remember what the, when the official date was. Um, and that's the sort of www dot, you know, whatever. That's why you started to see uh, domains with weird, um, you know, <laughs> missing vowels. And now we've got um, all different types of uh, top level domains that are like dot, you know, bananas or, or whatever. Um, part of the reason is, is because a bunch of people came online. The other part of the reason is because everything that's connected needs some kind of needs an access point. Um, And so in this, you know, right now, in my house alone, you know, I've got all of these different things that are connected to the internet, including my car, uh, (laughs) which has its own Wi Fi network, um, you know, which I don't use, but it's there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Going forward, you know, so many of the things that we interact with on a daily basis will be a part of this connected internet, uh, which creates a couple of interesting scenarios. One, um, anything that's connected is searchable, right? So we don't think about, we don't think about the fact that somebody can hack into our car and, and take it over for us and drive it for us while we're on the street. That sounds like something out of a Mission Impossible movie, but in reality, it happened in a controlled environment yep. with a reporter. Saw that. Yeah. <laughs> so great, great story by Andy Greenberg, um, in Wired. Uh, so, so that's, you know, one scenario. Uh, another scenario is that we we have uh, there there are these things called beacons and we've got our mobile devices um you know we are sort of walking data hub, hubs and without realizing it we're we're sharing sort of digital breadcrumbs about ourselves with the universe so that scene from minority report where the billboards came i don't even <laughs> think there were billboards it was just advertisements sort of in space um that may be dystopian or that may be really exciting depending on your uh, what what you do and who you are but that's not far off right and it's because of, of sort of being connected. Now, one other interesting piece of the sort of future internet is what I call the internet of X. And so we have all these different connected devices, but we also have searchable systems um, that are again connected, but uh, th- there's a company called a CO, S-C-I-O, and um, they have a scanner and they allow you to scan food, for example, uh, or scan medicine, and it will search through a database to tell mm-hmm. you what that is. Um, so that's another piece of this. So these things are as helpful as they are exciting and or concerning. Well, you point out that the Internet of Things means more ways to deliver malware. So we'll be looking at some serious privacy issues and according, in addition to all kinds of other issues. But we got an email from Mark in D.C. who says, A buddy told me that he downloaded some pictures of his daughter to his computer and a program instantly identified her by name, which really bothered him. You mentioned Facebook using your facial image in place of a password. Convenient, but I'm not allowing a camera in my computer to be in constant operation. We know that end-user agreements for all kinds of software and apps include permissions for all kinds of intrusive behavior. They collect and sell data on us for all kinds of reasons that we never envisioned or intended. That's notice. true, but but you still check the box <laughs> at the end of the terms of service and say, sure, that's all fine with me. Um, so a couple couple of safety tips, and again, I'm not a security expert, but a couple of easy things you can do. Um, 
you know, if you are really, really concerned, um, I, on all of the cameras that I've got, the webcams and stuff, I actually have a little post-it note that I always have over it, even if it's not in use. It's something easy that you can do. If somebody gives you a CD off the street with their new cool music, uh, never, ever, ever put that in your computer. Um, never buy a bootlegged, even, you know, you shouldn't buy it anyways because of copyright protections, but never buy a bootlegged DVD and stick that into your computer. That's an open invitation for disaster. Um, so, you know, but again, I think that goes to sort of digital street smarts, um, which we haven't had to have before. And that's sort of something to think about going forward. Speaking of street smarts, we have smart listeners, those who remember things that you and I do not remember. The office we were trying to recall, the Congressional Office of Technology Assessment. That's it. That's it. The Thank you. The former press secretary called. She says it was defunded by one Newt Gingrich. So. Yes, I got that part right. Uh, yeah, no, that's exactly right. And um, there were, you know. Well, I'd like to see something like that reestablished. Now, I will say that there is um, in in you know the, the, there are two offices. There's eighteen F and there's the digital uh, U.S. Digital. Oh, somebody's going to have to call again. Yeah, sorry. Uh, a, <laughs> and and they are doing really amazing things. Uh, they're getting a lot of government agencies up to speed. There's plenty of people working for eighteen F who are brilliant. That's all great. But again, that's stuff that's, you know, in the next one to, to two to maybe three years. I'm talking about longer term planning. And a lot of that happens through DARPA, which is, again, fine. And we need somebody needs to think in, in sort of a military direction. Um, but I'm talking about implications, policy, democracy, and, and that's something that's not happening. We're out of time and we didn't even get a chance to talk about quantum computers. That's for your next visit. Okay. Amy Webb is a writer, futurist, and founder of Web Media Group. It's a digital strategy consulting firm researching near future trends in digital media and technology. She's also the author of Data, a love story, a best-selling memoir about finding love through algorithms. Amy, always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Kojo. And thank you all for listening. I'm Kojo Nandi. WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support the Kojo Namdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the Donate button at WAMU.org and thanks.